So, Emily, what do you think, since this is an etymology podcast, and yeah. you said you were eating faro for dinner, Oh, what, what do you think, where do you think faro comes from, if you had to take a guess? Well, it's a, yeah, it's an Italian grain, but as for what it means, I have no clue. So, I guess it probably means, um, teeth. Yeah, it's, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you mean somebody said... This looks like teeth. Let's eat it and call it teeth. Yeah, that's what I went for. Okay. I mean, I guess that's as good a guess as any. Welcome to Butter No Parsnips. Every week on Butter No Parsnips, your hosts Kyle Imperator and Emily Moyers take you on an adventure through the weird, wacky, wonderful, and sometimes even wicked world of one wayside word. Strange characters, delightful bits, and general joyousness abound. Join them as they test each other's etymological expertise. Apparently, I've just looked it up. It just it just means wheat. It's just the name of a, a grain. Oh, okay. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Emily. We're back. We're back with another butter no parsnips, Wh- aren't we? What? I thought we were recording for our other podcast. Ooh, but we can't talk about that podcast. Oh, we can't Kyle. talk about that podcast. We were sworn it's a state secret. It's a state secret. Yeah, it's it's a podcast run by the Biden administration. <laughs> Yes, but uh, since we're on this podcast that we can talk about, yeah, I should tell you all that Kyle has a word for us, and this word has, until this moment, been a state secret, but it has now it has. been disclosed. It's true. It's true. I've gone through all of the redacted documents and gathered yep. the information, and I'm here to reveal to you uh, this word and eventually the meaning. All right. Well, let's start with the word. So, Emily, you might know this word. It has two separate etymologies. One oh. of them's kind of obvious. The other one's less so. But I'll give you a full point, full credit for this one if you can get close to the less obvious etymology. How's that? Okay. Okay? Hit me. The word is choir, and it is spelt Q-U-I-R-E. Choir. Oh. So my immediate thought is like this is an alternate form or like like the word acquire is related to this word like to gain something to, to gain yeah yeah to acquire no all right those are unrelated words yeah back to the drawing board <laughs> neither <for> etymology <laughs> yeah <laughs> can you give me a, a language of origin i can it is from either or both it's unsure but it's from either Anglo-Norman or Old French, and it comes okay. through Middle English. Sure, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's from French. Yeah. And it can be used as a noun or a verb in either etymology. Huh. So, to choir. Yes. Or a choir. You got it. Not a choir. A choir. Not a choir. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can you give me any other hints as to the meaning? One of them, when I said it was really obvious, one of the etymologies, it's because it is an alternate spelling of a word that is more familiar to us. Would that be C-H-O-I-R? Yes, it is that. It is that. Okay. I probably just gave that one to you, but that's not the one that you need to get. 
Sure. So so one meaning is like a, a group of singers. Yeah. So that meaning can be like an, an archaic term for choir, as in a group of singers. Mm-hmm. It could also be used to describe the area of a church used by the choir. Oh, that's fun. So commonly in the chancel, which is the space around the air, the altar, which is at the east end of a cruciform church, but they would call that area a choir. Okay. And you well, can also fun. use it as a verb. To choir means to sing in concert. Right. But then there's another meaning that is, is it related to that meaning or just completely separate? Completely separate. And that's probably, that is what we're going to talk about today. Something completely different from yes. singing. In that meaning, a choir is a rare species of frog, actually. (laughs) And that's Uh, what we're going to talk about. Yes, we're just going to talk about a specific rare species of frog called the choir. And you know what? They sing in a frog choir, so it's a choir choir. (laughs) Oh, a choir choir. (laughs) No, I'll I'll give you one more hint before I give it to you. All right. My on-the-nose hint is it can be found in a book. Oh, Frogs can be found in books. Um, I, I guess. <laughs> if you, like, squish them like you do, like, flowers oh, to preserve I meant, them. <laughs> I meant, like, there could be a book on the subject of frogs, but I guess you're right. Sorry, they, they can be found in books? It can be found in a book, yes. It can be found in a book. Words? Pages? Pages is letters. close. Yeah, uh, parchment? Eh, no, not, No. You're, I mean, you're on, you're dancing around it. I'm just going to give All it to right. you. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a choir is a term used in bookbinding, and it means a set of leaves which are stitched together. Originally, it was a set of four pieces of paper, making eight leaves and 16 pages. But now it can really be any sort of group. So, you know. When so like f- when you, when you look at the spine of a book, you can. Like you can see, it's like a bunch of sort of mini folded books all up against each other. And each one of those is called a choir. Each one of those is called a choir. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. It can also mean a term just in paper for one twentieth of a ream of paper, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And so you can use it as a verb for somebody making choirs. They are choiring. They are choiring to prepare choirs by stitching together leaves of paper. I love this word, being a book nerd that I am. That's why I thought you might know it, because you're such a book nerd. I appreciate the faith that you have in me, (laughs) but I absolutely have never heard this word in my life. Oh, good. (laughs) So uh, tell me more about it, because I know nothing. So it has an interesting etymology. It comes from the Middle English choir, Q-U-A-Y-E-R. Oh, Middle English is crazy. <laughs> well, it com- which and that comes from the Anglo-Norman choir Q Q U A I E R or and Old French Q U A E R. They just drop the really important vowel queer. <laughs> and it all comes from vulgar Latin, a word quaternum, meaning a set of four or four each. Sure, because it was originally four pieces of paper. Yeah, it seems to me that the oldest definition for choir is a book or a pamphlet. So they described it as like a set of all the sheets in a book was called a choir. And that comes from around the year 1200. And it's unrelated to bookbinding, um, interestingly enough. Oh, it like came from different sources to the same definition? 
Yeah, I think it started off as the pamphlet definition, and then when bookbinding evolved into more of an art form in the middle of the 15th century, they started to associate these pamphlets with what they were making in bookbinding gotcha. to create the books, and they just called them choirs. Wow. Choir, Q-U-I-R-E, comes from a different word. That comes from Old French, queer, Q-U-E-R, or queer. Q-U-E-O-R, and those are variants of C-U-E-R for chorus. And the interesting thing is that choir was used for a long time until the end of the 17th century to mean, like, a, a group of singers. Oh. But there was this movement to Latinize words towards the end, right. English words, towards the end of the 17th century. Right. And so choir was one of the ones that was a victim of it, and they just looked at it <laughs> and said, well... The Latin word chorus doesn't look anything like choir, so we're just going to put a CH in front of this word, even <laughs> though it does not look like it should say choir when you look that's at it. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy thing. Like, the, the transition from Middle English into Early Modern was truly just a bunch of scholars were like, you know what our language needs more of? Latin and Greek. What yeah. if we just insert it manually? Yeah, literally, <laughs> manually. And they're like, you know, if we just start doing it... It'll catch on. No, people won't... Ha yeah, people won't have a choice, you know? <laughs> yeah, truly. Emily, since you love books so much... Uh-huh. Let's talk about bookbinding a little bit. I would love nothing more. So, historically, books are were made of leaves of either parchment or vellum. Vellum? What is vellum? So vellum is synonymous with parchment, but it can be specifically used to refer to the animal skins used as materials for making vellum or parchment. So vellum comes from the old French vellin and the Latin vitulinus, meaning of a calf. Ooh. So, you know, those pieces of material could have been made from calf skins back then. Right. Before it was plants. Yes. Parchment, I mean, that's a word that we all know, but it's got a kind of interesting history. It comes from Middle English parchment, P-A-R-C-H-E-M-Y-N, and then through Old French and through Latin from a word called pergamina. And that word comes from an ancient Greek word, pergamenos, meaning of pergamon, which... <laughs> Is comes from, there was an ancient city called Pergamon, P-E-R-G-A-M-O-N. It's where modern-day Bergama in Turkey is, and it's where parchment was invented, was oh. the, the city of Pergamon, and it was invented as an expensive alternate for papyrus. Papyrus at the time was something made of plants, whereas Pergamon, or parchment, was made from skins of animals, calf, kid, right. or lamb skins. But it's interesting that it comes from a city, an ancient city. Yeah. That's where the word comes from. Yeah. Pergamina, by the way, I think I read that book as a child. Pergamina, yes. That's Pergamina, the one. The tiny little fairy. She lives in in the flower of a of a pear tree. Of a pear tree. Of a pear tree. Yeah. Pergamina. <laughs> Pergamina. <laughs> yeah. And there she sips the nectar from calf skins. Oh. Oh. The nectar from calfskins? I think that's just blood. Is it was Pergamina a, a vampire? It was a Grimm's fairy tale. 
<laughs> Way better than Thumbelina. Yeah, I mean, really, I can't wait for the modern retelling, you know. Yeah, the, the gritty remake that yeah, really, yeah, yeah. really leans into it. So the development of Parchment led to the development of the Codex, which was an early version of the manuscript, which had pages of parchment stitched together along one side. Prior to the invention of codices, when people wanted to write longer works, they had to be written on scrolls of papyrus. So they had right. they, it was these long scrolls of pieces of papyrus, and then once they developed the codex, it replaced scrolls as the preferred writing material for longer writings, and it became the ancestor of our modern-day book. Well, that's so terribly interesting. So the animal skin version of paper was... More or less expensive than papyrus. More expensive. I don't know why they wanted to create a more expensive version of papyrus. <laughs> well, I, I guess if if you're the one making money off of it, then you yeah. would. <laughs> well, I think, yes, yes. I, I, my assumption is that maybe it was made for, like, fancier writings or for, you know, royal writings, sure. you know? And I, I imagine it would last longer than plant-based paper absolutely absolutely but but more gruesome for sure <laughs> definitely definitely more gruesome wasn't everything more gruesome back in the middle ages absolutely <laughs> that's where we get all those strange paintings from yes uh, many horrifying paintings yeah. of like baby-faced adults yes. and adult-faced babies I, you know i just assume that's what like they the painters weren't bad back then that's just what people look like <laughs> that's just what people look like yeah <laughs> And we're lucky to live in the in the age that we live. <laughs> yeah, it was a horrifying time. Yeah. So <laughs> choirs, then they started to fold leaves of parchment or vellum to create books. And that's when right. we got choirs. Those folded leaves of parchment or vellum were originally called quaternions or quaternums, meaning, you know, four, having a right. four term. They could be folded into any different number of sheets, um, which all had their own terms, which I won't go through because they're pretty on the nose. Sure, it's just different numbers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then once paper became the material of choice, you know, choirs could be larger than four. You know, they could right. be any number. And the meaning of the four... Because the paper was thinner? Yeah, the meaning of four was kind of obfuscated. But right. we continue to call it choir to this day. It is the bookbinding term for... That piece of uh, of the book. Just a, a vestigial four. A vestigial, yes, a vestigial four. <laughs> yeah. Which also happens to be the number of tales, vestigial tales that I have. That you have, yes. A Kyle's vestigial, vestigial four. four. Yeah. yeah, sitting down is rough. Oh, it's so hard, yeah. <laughs> so on the subject of bookbinding, I want to talk to you about a famous group of bookbinders, a printing firm. I mean... Do you know any history about bookbinding or or the or the printing press or anything like that? Is there anything that you can think of off your the top of your head? So the first two things that come to mind are the book Inkheart. I think her dad was a bookbinder or okay. a book a book fixer, a book doctor. That's mm -hmm. what they called him. And then the only other thought I had was was newsies. Absolutely. I mean that's the, the printing press, yeah. That is a big one. That is a big one. One that is a contentious topic for us, but we don't have to get into it. <laughs> we won't get into that today because... It's a the, great movie. 
the question is movie or or musical but we're we're, we're not going to talk the about that right now <laughs> it is absolutely not but that'll be for our musical theater podcast yes which yeah. happens to be the i just spilled the beans oh the, the biden administration <laughs> is paying us kyle there's a red dot on my forehead right now <laughs> So I want to talk with you, Emily, about a famous printing firm. It is the STN family. They established their printing firm in 1502 with a man named Henri Estienne. Oh, okay. STN, like spelled out, not like the letter S, the letter T, no. the letter N. It, yes, I guess that is <laughs> unclear. That is unclear. But it, yeah, it's E-S-T-I-E-N-N-E. -E -N -N -E. It's French. That that makes more sense. Henri Estienne. His, his Latinized name was Henricus Stephanus. <laughs> and and he they the family used those Latinized names interchangeably, especially because all of the books that they were writing and printing were in Latin, you know. And this printing firm lasted from 1502 until the death of Henri's great-great-grandson, Antoine, in 1674. Wow. So wow. almost 200 years. Good run. Yeah, it was a very good run. And many members of the family were involved in the business and were well-studied and committed to scholarly publishing. So one of the things that's really interesting about the family is that everyone was involved, including, you know, all of the women. So the, the daughters were involved. And if you married into the family, you were expected to take classes in Greek and Latin so that wow. you could so that you could help write these novels, like like or, write these translations. That must have made courtship rough. So difficult. It's like, oh, by the way, you will need to enroll in <laughs> Night school. Yes. Um, uh, a single man looking for woman who with knowledge of Greek and Latin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Single woman looking for linguist. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about this printing firm is that it had a brand identity in the 1500s. Wow. Yeah. It, their, I, their brand identity was carefully managed and nurtured by Robert I, who was the second son of Henri I. Okay. So the brand identity included a logo that changed over the wow. years. Yeah. It changed over the years, but it generally involved an olive tree or olive branches or an olive wreath. The olive plant there was... Olives were a motif. And the reason was because Stephanus, which was their Latinized last name, means crown or wreath in Greek. So the oh. olive wreath came to be a symbol for the family. Their their slogans... They had slogans? They had slogans as well. Of course they did. It's a carefully managed brand identity. How do you propagate a slogan in... 1500 you can't make a commercial they just stamped it on the back of every book they would have their logo and then underneath it they would have their slogan in latin amazing and they had a bunch over the course of you know the 200 year course of of the printing firm but they mostly revolved around the idea that olive branches grafted onto the tree of life are lucky to benefit from the tree and so they, as publishers and editors of classical works, are lucky to have made their living off of the masters. Oh. 
Emily, I'm going to tell you like some of one of their slogans. Can you like, do you have any ideas what one of their slogans might be? Their brand slogans? Their brand slogans? Yeah. It was an olive branch and then underneath it, it said, when you read here, your family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but up bum 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 I'm reading it. <laughs> and that was just on the back of the book. It said but um bum 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 on the back of the book. <laughs> yeah, it had it, it was it was basically they wrote out the music for it and put <laughs> <laughs> It was like the sheet music. Yeah, and it said to be sung by choir, Q U I R E. Q U I R E. Yeah. <laughs> so they mentioned a lot of references to the Bible in their slogans. This one here. I think this is a whole slogan. <laughs> the slogan is, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you <laughs> do boast, remember it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say... Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. That is not a slogan. That is from the Bible. <laughs> no, that's that's like a commercial. That's like Matt Damon reads all of that while walking through yeah. like a big white space of yeah. all like man's greatest achievements. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. While yeah. dramatic music plays in the background. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like intercut with shots of like a car zooming down yeah. a country road. Yeah. Black and white images of of trees growing in 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 fast motion. <laughs> fast motion. <laughs> Apples like falling to the ground and, flight. and rotting and then turning into seeds and plants growing up in its place. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is a Super Bowl commercial. Yeah. So actually that is that is from the Bible, but that is what they referenced in in their slogans. Yeah, I mean not a slogan. You're absolutely yeah, right. It's not. <laughs> so Robert the 1st, who's the son I mentioned, was known as the printer to the king. His best known work was the Thesaurus Linguae Latinae. And it's considered Pr- the foundation of modern Latin lexicography. Interesting. Printer to the King, by the way, is a good slogan for a company that makes printers. I mean, like, right? Like, yes. HP should make their slogan yes. Printer to the King. <laughs> uh, because of his work, he became known as the father of French lexicography. He did a lot. He was very important for printing at the time. And... His printing is the first to use apostrophes and grave and acute accents in France. Interesting. Yeah, he was trained as a punch cutter, but we've never been able to identify a font that is specifically created by him. But he worked with the best punch cutters of the time in France. Those were the people that, like, designed the letters? The letters that would go in the printing press, yeah. Got it. And he was the first one to put all the million and six, like, diacritical markings that French has? Yes. So we can blame him for that. (laughs) It's his fault for the little, like, line under the sea and the carrot above. Yes. Yeah. It is absolutely his fault. Wow. He published two dictionaries, one in English Latin and one in French Latin. 
and they were seen as better than others of his time because he used only citations from classical authors in the definitions. Gotcha. And he arranged it alphabetically based on the first three letters of the word and then ordered it etymologically, which combined the two competing methods of ordering words in dictionaries at the time. At the time, oh. they were either organized completely alphabetically or completely etymologically. Completely etymologically. I can't even say that, yes. but it sounds like a nightmare. How would yes. you ever find what word you were looking for? I don't know. And I've seen some dictionaries like that. And it's like, why? What would the use of this be other yeah. than just for reading material? When, when am I ever like, hmm, I need the definition of any word that comes from Latin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, okay. The, it starts with beef here. <laughs> We're going to learn about beef and all of the beef-related words. I'm <laughs> um, really impossible. Emily, if you if you had to organize a dictionary, if you had to come up with a different way to organize a dictionary, how might other you... Than, other than alphabetical, which is the only way that yeah. makes sense? <laughs> yeah, but like a, like a fun way that might be useful for someone. Maybe um, specific. I, I would just do it by length, like oh my number God. of letters. <laughs> oh my God. And then not even alphabetically... By number of letters, just randomly. Yeah, beyond that, just random. Yeah. Here's all the six-letter words in the next 500 pages. Yeah, well, it would, be, it would be by length and then by how much I like the word. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So it would lead up to, you know, from my least favorite six-letter word to my most favorite <laughs> six-letter word. I mean, what... I mean, what a personal endeavor to come up with. Oh, yeah. I mean, order. it's going to take decades, but I'm going to do it. I mean, now that this is on air, like you, you're committed to this. But this is this is how I'm going to get sponsorships. Yes. <laughs> for your dictionary. Brands come for me. <laughs> Brands come for me. What's the what's the slogan for your dictionary that goes oh, on the back? We don't, we don't have the time. It's it's six paragraphs long. <laughs> Yeah, this it's is going to take up the entire back cover. This is one of those things where, like, you die in the middle of it, like famous novelists do. We we must finish her yeah. work. We've got to finish her famous symphony. Yeah. No one would. <laughs> no, no one would. They might look at it and say, wow, what a sad, sad creature. <laughs> what a wasted life. <laughs> really, truly, you know, good for her, I guess. But literally, we can't finish it because it was based on her favorite words. She only got up to four-letter words. <laughs> How do we know what her favorite five-letter words were? What is it going to be? <laughs> Hold classes, college courses dedicated to <laughs> discussions of your oove. Yeah. Deep speculation. Yeah, deep speculation. So... Uh. Robert I's son, Henri II, also known as Henricus Stephanus as his grandfather. Um, is, <laughs> it's a proud name. It is a proud name. He was seen as the most prominent member of the family, and he followed in his father's footsteps, his most famous work being the thesaurus Graeca Linguiae, uh, which is a Greek th thesaurus, which I, th I think it was the the biggest and best at the time. He published it in five volumes. <laughs> but but best among Greek thesauruses, which I imagine was a low bar. You are definitely low bar in <laughs> uh, the mid-1500s, late 1500s, yeah. yeah. He's also well known for his publications of Plato 
for which he devised his own referencing system, which is still the referencing system we use today for Plato's works. And it's known as the, the Stephanus pagination. So possibly his most famous work is a work called Apology Pur Herodity. And it was an introduction to a French edition of a wor- of, of works by Herodotus. And the introduction that he wrote, it's an original introduction, it paralleled the strange stories in Herodotus's time with modern stories, but in a satirical manner. So the, the, the works of Herodotus are like kind of these kind of crazy, like out there, you know, apocryphal stories, I guess. But Henri II used these stories and say, hey, maybe it's not so crazy that this stuff could happen today because, like, look at politics, you know? <laughs> like, these people are crazy and we got to learn a lesson from this, you know, in some strange way. Sure. His work was so popular, it went through 12 editions in 16 years. Wow. Yes, that is how popular it was in the 1500s, which that is yeah. not an easy thing to do because no. <laughs> you had to print each book individually. But I guess if you're a, a family of bookbinders, you're like... We can do this. <laughs> this. This is literally our job. This is our turf. The The Church of Geneva found that work so objectionable that Henri <laughs> was arrested and forced to cancel offending pages from further publications. Oh, wow. We hate censorship. We're anti-censorship unless it's stuff that we want to be censored. Yeah, unless it's stuff we don't like. Unless it's our least favorite six-letter words. (laughs) Our least favorite six-letter words. Or (laughs) three-letter words. The others, they're fine. Yeah. So he quotes, in quotes, I'm saying he quotes, air quotes around quotes, Mm -hmm. a poem in this. As far as I can tell, he says it's he's quoting it, but it seems to be a completely original poem. (laughs) (laughs) That he's quoting from a from a, just a fictional source. So, like when when you want to act like there's there's a rumor going around, and you're like, some people are yes. saying this, yes. but I just made it up. <laughs> yes, and he uses this poem to complain about how the clergy isn't as great as they make themselves out to be, <laughs> and he calls friars drunkards, basically. Ooh. Yeah, so he prefaces this poem as other examples of the wickedness of this age, especially of such as term themselves clergymen. And here are the first three verses, Emily. Oh my gosh. To you, Sir Friars, this suit I make, that some good course of life ye take, in single heart and soberness, and leave your daily drunkenness, which of all ill doth stir the fire, And please you, sir, we serve the choir. Ye do, but if you sober live, To God ye shall right worship give, And in the people breed a strife. To tread in steps of your good life, Virtue than vice hath better hire, And please you, sir, we serve the choir. But unto God tis detestable To sit full three hours at the table In drunkenness and belly cheer. Why do ye not amend this gear, lest God you punish in his ire? And please you, sir, we serve the choir. Oh, I love that as a refrain. Isn't that a nice little refrain? And please you, sir, we serve the the choir. choir. Wow. 
So this, what, do you, what, what, give me some of your thoughts on that little poem there, Emily. I mean, my immediate thought was, uh, do they rhyme table and detestable? detestable? Yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did, Emily. <laughs> yeah, so they were, they were reaching a little bit. Reaching. But, I mean, probably for good reason, because this poem goes on for a total of 19 verses. Oh, and that was just the first three? And that was just the first three. And I remind you that he quotes this, but it was most likely an original poem that he wrote to make his point that he was mad that the clergymen were always drunk all the time. Because because he literally wrote, we serve the choir, which is his family business. (laughs) Well, he's I think he's talking about the choir of the church saying, oh, us clergymen, we serve the choir, you know, uh, like, it's tongue-in-cheek, you know? Then that's a doubly good refrain, because then it's a play on words. Isn't that interesting? Oh, well done, Henri. Henri. So, Emily, that's everything that I have on choir here. Wow, Um, I mean, that was all so cool. I love, like, the dual meaning and... And this this poem with the play on words. Yeah, I, I thought you would like this word. It's it's a little it's it's interesting because it kind of gets into the nitty gritty of the medium in which we use words nowadays. You know, you know, through sure. the paper, through through written word. Um, yeah. So I thought you might enjoy that. Well, I love that. Are you in for a little game, Emily? Oh, Kyle, you know it. I've got a game for you here that may be a little familiar to you, Emily. Oh. It's a game called Here Here. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Bring it back! Um I I listen, I heard your the thoughts. Crowd, the crowd just went wild. <laughs> we knew that you liked it. We're by popular demand. It's back. <laughs> here here, everybody. Here, here, electric boogaloo. Electric boogaloo. The squeakle. <laughs> wow, I love this encore. Yeah. So for those of you at home playing along with us, I'm going to give a, a sentence and Emily's going to have to come up with a grouping of uh, homophones that describe that sentence. So for example, yeah. if I say a promotional pamphlet for joining a church chorus... One might say, Acquire choir. Acquire choir. Yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so I've got five fun ones for you today, Emily. Oh, and then one that's boring? I, no, just five fun ones. I left the boring one out this time. Yes! Aren't you so lucky? <laughs> this is the best day ever. So my first sentence here is a type of American coal worker before the 1920s. A type of American coal worker before. The 1920s? Yeah. I mean, minor, minor? That you got it. Sense. Why does yes? that not make sense? That's it, Emily. What is what is minor before the 1920s mean? Because after the 1920s, children were not allowed to work in mines in America. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a minor, minor. <laughs> it's a minor, minor. Okay, your next one is a high-ranking official in the corn military. <laughs> a colonel colonel a colonel colonel you got it emily next up a cigarette smoker's safe Ooh, a cigarette smoker's 
safe. Yeah, this might be a hard one. I'm trying to think of like any other word for safe. That's a good place to go, yeah. Thinking like cash. It's kind of an older term for this. I would say Vault. it's I would say it's more metaphorical nowadays. You wouldn't call a physical item this. You might call something this in like florid language. I'll be honest, that 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 didn't help much. Yeah, I didn't think so. Can I give you this one? <laughs> yeah, you can give me this one. So the answer is a coffers coffers. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Okay, this one's three words. You're going to like this. I'm going to give you a quote, okay, in a character, okay? Okay. Hey, you dolls are just secondhand sheep, capiche? Use, use. (laughs) It's three words, though. (laughs) Oh, used, use. Yeah, use, use, use. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's your last, here's your last one. This is a really fun one. All right. A private teacher of flatulence from the Elizabethan period. Oh no! It's three. It's three words as well. It's th- sure. So like, private teacher is one. Flatulence is another, and Elizabethan era is another. Yes, not necessarily in that order. Oh, a tutor, tutor, tutor. Yeah, tutor, tutor, tutor. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Isn't that good? <laughs> Uh, I'm so proud that I got that. <laughs> I'm me too, Emily. Hundred percent. I'm gonna give you a hundred percent. Amazing. Okay. I didn't get a hundred percent, but thank you. <laughs> you deserve it. Oh, thanks. Oh, well, Emily, thank you for letting me talk a little bit about choir with you. Yeah, I feel like I learned so much. I Good. hope our listeners did as well. Me too. And uh, I'm gonna. Here's the sign off. We're signing off. <laughs> We're si- this is th- this has now become the last episode of Butter No Posters. <laughs> See ya in the year 432,000. All right. Or next week. Or next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for Bye-bye. joining us for Butter No Posters. Thank you for listening to Butter No Parsnips. Butter No Parsnips is produced by Seth Glicksman, Emily Moyers, and Kyle Imperator. The theme music and additional music is by Kyle Imperator. If you liked listening to this episode, subscribe and give us a good rating and or positive review wherever you heard it. If you really liked listening, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash butternoparsnips. There you can get bonus content you can't get anywhere else, like the monthly Patreon-exclusive podcast Buttered Parsnips. Your support means the world to us and encourages us to keep making more. Thanks in advance, and we'll be back next week.